Good evening. Welcome you back to our Sunday night study. We're glad that you've chosen to to be with us. I'm a planner. Are you a planner? I'm not sure if you are. I'm a classic type A in a lot of ways. I like to have a plan. I don't like winging it. I like to know the way things are going to go, and preferably I'd like for them to go my way. Um, um, in the season of the year where I'm spending a lot of time on next year, uh, thinking about the theme and thinking about the direction for the year, and so I've been doing it long enough now that I know uh, there will be, <laughs> there will be times uh, when things don't go according to my plan. Uh, this year, on a personal level, was absolutely uh, that for me. Uh, much of the of of my plan for more than half the year was scrapped, uh, not in a bad way. I didn't preach sermons I planned to preach. That'll be fine. Church will survive, um, and that's where I needed to be. But just an illustration that whether you're a planner or not, you'll have times in which nothing goes according to plan. That can be when you're shopping on Black Friday. That can be when you're going on vacation, uh, which, by the way, that's how type A's vacation. We don't vacation without a plan. Uh, it can be with regard to your entire year. Uh, some people I've known have had a season of years where nothing went according to plan. Mary and Joseph both learned this, I'm convinced. Um, whether it was the first time, the scripture doesn't say. But for sure, they learned as they received the announcement, both directly and within a dream, that things were going to be different these coming nine months in a way they couldn't have planned for or expected or prepared for. Uh, nothing about the incarnation was in their plan. It was in God's plan, I'm convinced of that. Uh, they would just have to trust him. If you're a planner and a believer, uh, you should get used to things not going according to your plan. And that's okay. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. I invite you to open to the book of Isaiah, chapter 55. Isaiah 55 has a lot of good things within it. Uh, the prophet Isaiah is inviting God's people to seek the Lord, to enjoy his blessings. Uh, it's an invitation for them and for us to feed at God's table, to follow his leading uh, to be experiencing the blessing that comes with following the Lord fully and to be forgiven by him. That's an invitation that sounds pretty good. I don't know how you'd turn that down. It sounds real good. And following the Lord is a wonderful thing. But there are times uh, when it's easy to do and when it's hard to do. It's easy to do when, when things are kind of going your way and you're still following the Lord. But there are other times when you're following the Lord, and he goes a different path than you would have taken. He goes a different way than you might have taken, if it were just up to you. I've told this story before, um, but it, it reminds me of the, our journey with God. There were several years ago, uh, enough years ago, 
that Tyler was small enough, he would, when he rode with me in my truck, he would sit in the back in the car seat. And uh, But he was old enough that he kind of knew my patterns and my routines and where I would go and how I would get there when I went somewhere. And we were driving along, and I, I can't remember if we, I believe we were going, coming to the church building. And uh, I told him that's where we were going, and as we were going, I went a different way because I had some other things to get to do along the way. He was old enough that he knew the way to the church that I typically took, but he was not old enough to understand that there's more than one way to get to the building. And he began to protest from the back seat and say, Dad, this isn't the way. Dad, this isn't the way. Dad, you're not going the way. And uh, I thought about that, about how to teach him about that, and I finally just decided that the best thing to do was, I said, Tyler, yeah. Do you trust your dad? Yeah. Okay. We'll get there. It won't be as you think, but we'll get there. That's the way it is with us and God. Uh, there's many times when we want to follow him and, and think we know the way that seems best. But God has other things to do and other people to get along the way, and we have to trust him more than we trust in ourselves. So, we're in Isaiah 55, and we're going to start in verse 6. And I just want to go through uh, these few verses and some thoughts for us to kind of meditate on and think about throughout the week. Isaiah 55, starting verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So, the the first thing is that, I call this lesson, he most likely won't. I, I, I know there's a lot of things that God will do, and we're told about those promises many times in Scripture, but there are some things that God most likely won't. And the first thing is, he won't most likely, let you stay where you are. Uh, The Bible word for that is repentance, to turn. Uh, One definition of repentance is to agree with God. So, uh, But repentance is not an option. Uh, God, you've probably heard the the saying that God allows U-turns. Well, he he does. He he not only allows U-turns, but he expects them. God wants to show you mercy, and he wants to be compassionate towards you, and he wants you uh, not to suffer the, the result of your sin. As a part of that, he calls you to forsake your own sinful way and your own selfish thoughts. And that's really hard to do. <laughs> forsaking yourself is hard. Forsaking others, not so hard at some time. And forsaking the ways of the world, not always hard. But when it comes to what you want... And what you think, sometimes God will call you to forsake that too. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter writes these words, which I think fit well. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but, but he's patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
Repentance is, of course, key to returning to the Lord and to being a part of the kingdom, to being a part of the new covenant. We can't, you know, uh, Jesus said to believe and be baptized. Peter preached to repent and be baptized. Which of those is right? The answer is yes. Repentance is a critical part of the process, but repentance is a, not a one-and-done kind of thing. When Jesus was preaching and <clears throat> pronouncing about the kingdom of God, Matthew records that he began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. Or, I'm sorry, excuse me. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, he said. Repentance was not just the message of John the Baptist as he prepared the way, but Jesus, repentance was a part of Jesus' message about the kingdom which was at hand, which would come on the day of Pentecost. We see this, Acts 2.38, the verse most, most Church of Christ folks should know naturally. And Peter said to them, repent. Well, what's he saying that in response to? Verse 37 says, the men were cut to the heart and they cried out, what shall we do? In other words, preceding that, he said, you have crucified the Son of God. And here's the witness of all the scriptures to prove that he was the Son of God. And they're cut to the heart, which scripture does, but they come to this problem of we have killed the Son of God and we can't undo it. What do we do? <clears throat> the answer, repentance, turning away, agreeing with God in, in the ways in which you have wronged God, which is what sin is. Repent and be baptized to every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, repentance isn't not only a part of entering the kingdom of God, it's a part of living in the kingdom of God. Can I ask you, when was the last time you repented? We say, well, how does that happen exactly? Does that mean we, a public going for, I guess, a public going backward as we do now? Uh, well, in some cases it might. Um, <clears throat> If it's a, it's a public sin, if it's known by many in the church, if it potentially stains the reputation of Christ and his followers, then yeah, probably a public confession and a public repentance would be appropriate. But, but not all sin is in need of a public repentance. So let me ask you again, when was the last time that you, as a Christian, repented? A good example of uh, repentance, and from what we know, it was a private way. Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote. Uh, in fact, mine just has this note in Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone <clears throat> into Bathsheba. He had committed a public sin. Of course, many people had known about that, though he tried to cover it up. Word had gotten out, you see. I'll read part of it. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Blot out, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, 
that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See what David's doing there? First of all, he's asking for mercy. He's admitting his transgressions. He's asking for God's cleansing from his sin and from his iniquity. He's acknowledging his transgressions and his sin doesn't have anything to do with him. It doesn't have anything to do with anybody else. Now that's interesting to me. David's sin affected a lot of people. Bathsheba, Uriah, their families, David's family. It affected a lot of people. David, a man after God's own heart, realized that the core of the issue with his sin was this. Against you, God, have I sinned. David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, thought God would wink at that. God would be okay with that. David knew the commands. David knew that that God was not okay with adultery. He certainly knew God was not okay with murder and cover-up and lies and deception. And he did it anyway. And he said, it's against you, Lord, that I've sinned. Your ways are just. Your judgments are right. You're justified and you're blameless in your judgment. And I think that's a real good picture of what repentance is. So I ask you again, when was the last time you repented? The New Testament describes repentance in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And, of course, the context there is Paul's uh, admonition of the church at Corinth. Uh, certainly, in what, in the, what we call 1 Corinthians, um, there was several letters traded back and forth. We have two of them. And it's, it's apparent, we're only reading one side of the, the conversation, and it's apparent when Paul writes 2 Corinthians that the Corinthians have responded and repented from their sin, from their tolerate, uh, tolerating sin. And we know this because of the change in behavior that evidenced to Paul. He writes this, For even if I made you grieve, this, I'm sorry, I backed up a couple of verses, verse 8 of Second uh, Corinthians chapter 7. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did, <clears throat> though I did regret it, for I see that uh, my letter grieves you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And then he clarifies what he's talking about. He says, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's a big difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, and we understand that. If you're a parent, you understand when, you're, when your children mess up and do that which they shouldn't do or don't do that which they should do, when you punish them, when you discipline them, you know there's a difference in, in the type of response. And I can't perfectly quantify it, but you know it as a parent when your child is truly sorry for what they've done. Versus when they're only sorry for the punishment that they're about to receive. 
We understand the difference. As an adult, ever been pulled over for taking a rather liberal interpretation of the speed limit? No. When the officer pulled up, what was your response? Was it godly sorrow? Or was it worldly sorrow? Was it sorrow over the lives that you've endangered, over the breaking of the law, over your, your, your breaking of your commitment to be a good citizen within the kingdoms in which you live? Or is it a worldly sorrow that attempted to excuse and explain and stutter and stammer and lie and deceive your way into not getting punished? Paul says to the Christians at Corinth, I'm sorry that I I upset you so, although I'm not really sorry that I upset you so, because what my letter did was cause you to repent. A sort of, a form of godly sorrow that brings repentance, that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. And that's the difference. If you're a Christian, you have to have that type of sorrow to become a Christian. But there will be times as a Christian when you need to have godly sorrow for something you've said, something you've did, the way you treated someone, the way you mistreated someone. Uh, the things you were supposed to do and didn't, the things you did and you, that you shouldn't have done. And there's two very different responses in those times. Godly sorrow, which leads to salvation, and worldly sorrow, which leads only to regret. The best definition of worldly sorrow is a popular phrase that says, sorry, not sorry, which is a classic non-apology. I, I regret nothing. And I pridefully say to you, I'm sorry if that made you feel bad. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. So, God won't let you stay where you are. He's going to ask you to forsake yourself. He's going to ask you to have godly sorrow and repentance. And we'll know if we're living lives of repentance by one word. How do you know if you've repented? The question, is, or the question I pose to you is, do you see any fruit? You have a couple, they're having marital problems, they're, going, they're constantly bickering and arguing, but one, one I'm not going to say which one, uh, sins against the other. And he or she is guilty. <laughs> and the other one now is wounded and hurt. And, and they go to the counselor and they say, what should we do? Or they go to the preacher and say, what should we do? And the counselor, if he's a Christian or the preacher, will say, you need to practice repentance. You need to say you're sorry. Not just because you got caught, but you need to say you're sorry because you're truly sorry. And the question will be, well, how do I know he's truly sorry? How do I know she's truly sorry? How do I know that they really mean it? And the answer is, do you see any fruit? Do you see any change? Do you see the behavior continuing? John the Baptist preached this uh, to the Pharisees, that they should bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I want you to repent, but I want you to show me that you've repented. We go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 
And Paul describes it. He says, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. That's fruit. That's the fruit of repentance. And so, I ask you, have you repented? Are you living lives of repentance? And do we see the fruit of that? Because God won't likely let you stay where you are. That's just not the way the Lord works. Secondly, He won't let you do things your way. Despite how popular Frank Sinatra made doing things my way seem, uh, that's not the way for followers of Jesus. Uh, continue in our key text, which is Isaiah 55, and read with me. Isaiah 55, starting in verse 8. You see, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thoughts are not your thoughts. He doesn't think of things like you do. It's beyond his ability. The closest comparison I can think is try comparing your thoughts to the thought of a slug. There's just not much there. Okay, The, the brain activity of a slug, I'm sure there is some, but it's just not near as complex as yours is. You don't think of things like slugs do. And in the same way, you don't think of things, or God can't think of things like you do. We can't conceive what God can conceive. Grace was sharing with me about our science class, and they're studying the universe and the heavens, and starting to study. So we watched this video that I've had for a long time. Uh, the speaker does a great job talking about the universe and talking about how God made all of this. And when you study the size of the universe, how small it begins to make you feel in a good way. <laughs> because you begin to understand the size of God to create the size of such a universe. As we talked, we talked about the size of the universe. And... In the discussion, I said, you know, yeah, that's, that's why they call it the known universe. Because there's still parts of it that they don't understand. That was something that God did so long ago. That was something that God spoke a word and it happened. And we're still trying to understand all of that. So, certainly we can't think what God thinks. We can't conceive what God conceives, and we can't know what God knows. An example of this, uh, I hope you've read the book of Job. It's helpful for, especially helpful in times of suffering. The story of itself uh, is interesting because it gives us some insights into things that happen in the spiritual realm that Scripture doesn't speak a lot of. And 
as Job and his friends hear Job's complaint and Job asks God to hear his case, you, if you read through the text, you get this picture of storm clouds and lightning bolts. And you, you, you as Kansans would be familiar with, you see the storm beginning to brew. You, you get the picture that a storm is coming. And then in chapter 38, the text says, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Now, if you've been in Kansas longer than a, a year, you've seen a a good storm or two. And if you've been here for your lifetime, you've certainly seen a few. And you know there's a point at which you stop filming and go inside because things are about to unleash. And Job 38 is God about to unleash. And I'm not going to read all of it for you, which is a travesty because the whole next two chapters are pretty good. But listen to how God responds to a man who speaks in ignorance about things he, he doesn't fully understand. Listen to God's response. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? Or where were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstones when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and, and here shall your proud ways be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it may take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you, the gates of death, been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. And he's just getting started. And the Creator is addressing a good, God-fearing man whose understanding is limited. And he'll go on for the next 38, 39, and listen after Job hears all of that from his creator, who's answering out of the storm, how does Job respond? Job chapter 40, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord. And said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once. I will not answer twice. But I will proceed no further. 
Job was rightly put in his place. You say, that, that's not right. Don't you know what Job went through? What he suffered? What he lost? And he was a good, righteous man? That doesn't seem right. God says, you don't know the things of which you speak. You have no perspective. You're a slug in my eternal plan. Where were you when you, I created the universe, when I laid out the foundations and measured it off and measured the sea and set the boundaries for it? Where were you when I did that, Job? That's right, you weren't there. Because I hadn't created you yet. He's saying, I'm the creator of the universe, the master, the ruler, the king, the potentate. And he rightly... helps us understand and reminds us that there's only one God. And you're not him, and I'm not him, and Job's not him. And so when when things go outside of your understanding, you're going to have to trust the one who is beyond understanding. And if you've been put in Job's place, it's a very humbling feeling. Who am I to question God? Who am I to advise God? Who am I to ask God for an explanation? Who am I to be angry with God? I have to be careful here because I, I know there are some, some people who would call themselves Christians and say, I'm angry at God. And I say, be very careful. Because if God were angry with you, you'd be gone and there'd be a greasy spot where you were sitting. God is patient with you. And you're angry with him? God does things beyond your understanding, and you demand an explanation. You counsel God, you advise God, you question his ways. And God says to Job, Who is this? It darkens my counsel without knowledge. I think a better view is a healthy Fear of God. An understanding and a trusting that of course he's going to do things you don't understand. And of course he's going to do things you can't explain. That's why he's God. It's only from here that we can sing the song that Carl let us in tonight. I'm really glad he picked it. I I didn't make that plan, but God 
will make a way where there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. That's a spirit that is humbled before the Lord and trusts in him completely. Who says to the Lord, just like Mary did, I am the Lord's servant. I don't understand this, Lord. I don't even know how I'm going to explain it. But if you say so, Lord, I trust it. Our family's been reading through Luke in the book of December. And uh, here this week, we were in Luke chapter 5. And we were reading, and I'll read it for you. Simon and crew fished all night by their own efforts. Um, I'm sorry. (laughs) I need to read it and then make the commentary on it, okay? Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Here's how Luke, the good doctor, records the calling of the first disciples. He says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. They had fished all night and were done. Getting out into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down, and he taught the people from the boat. So he asked Simon to do one thing. He said, okay, Lord, sure. And then when he finished, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. You, you mean these, the nets that we just washed? You want those back in the water? Because, Lord, I'm awful tired. I really could use my boat back. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. If you're following along in your Bible, you highlight that at your word because that's, that's a good one. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they, began, they came and filled both the boats so that it began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He understood in that moment who Jesus was. <laughs> and his response is very humbling. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Simon and his crew fished all night. By their own efforts, they caught nothing. But when they trusted Jesus at his word, Even though they didn't understand it, even though they were tired, even though they were worn out, they brought in more fish than they could ever handle on their own. Nearly sank both the boats. And instantly they understood. They didn't understand all of Jesus at that point, but they understood that Jesus was somebody unlike them. And they would say, he doesn't do things your way. And that's good. So trust him and leave your ways behind.
And there's that picture, that beautiful picture of these two boats overflowing the fish, the nets full of them. There's just fish flopping around everywhere. I don't know if people came and took care of the fish or not. But Simon and the boys are like, we're all in with that guy. I love that. God won't let you stay where you are. He probably won't do things your way. and That's all right. But he will. He will make his will Go back to Isaiah chapter 55. We'll finish on this point. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish what I purpose, and shall succeed in the, same, in the thing for which I sent it. It occurred to me that God only deals with lesser beings. Outside of the Trinity, he only deals with lesser beings, whether they're angels or humans or animals or slugs. His will surpasses all of theirs. But to us, he makes his will perfectly clear. Now, that doesn't mean everything I understand fully and completely everything in this book, but he makes his will clear. There are certainly some things that are challenging to understand as we study the Bible, but there are many things which are not ambiguous at all. God has made them very clear. The point then is not to try to understand. The point is to yield to his will, to listen, to know, to read. All of those things are good, but even greater is to do what the will of God is, to put into practice what you know. Not just to hear the words, as James says, but to live them. To know God's will is one thing. To live it out is another matter entirely. So may we not say that God is silent if you don't listen to his word. Don't say that God is absent if you haven't been in the book. God is not silent, nor is he absent. You just aren't listening. Don't expect a special revelation. Uh, it's cool to hear stories, uh, accounts of angels intercepting our dreams and I think God can still do that if he wants to, but let us not wait and wait and wait for a special revelation and ignore this perfect revelation. May we listen. May we trust. May we obey. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. He won't let you stay where you are. And that's all right. And he won't do things your way. And that's for the best. But he will make his will clear. And our call is to listen to it and obey it. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for the time that we can spend in your presence and with one another today. It's been truly a blessing to 
worship and to pray and to sing and to be reminded of the eternal truths and to meet at your table and to give, to provide to the, the needs of the kingdom and for one another. This day is the very, these things are the very best way I can imagine for us to spend at the first day of our week. But Father, what makes all of those things special is your presence and your work in all of those things. And, and so as we dismiss tonight, may we not leave these things here on this day, but may we live them out throughout this week and throughout our lives. Lord, forgive us. There are many times, like Job, that we speak out of our ignorance. We question you. We ask for explanations from you. We advise you. We even become quite full of ourselves and become angry with you. Forgive us, Father, for we know not what we do. And help us in those moments to be reminded of your servant Job and those other men and women of faith who who understood that following you is a matter of trust. Father, we, we know that you won't let us stay where we are, that you call us to different and better things like you did Peter and the rest of the fishing crew. Father, as we are called to better things, we pray that we might yield to where you want us to go. And Lord, we pray, uh, for we know that you won't go our way. You will not do the things as we see fit. You will do things differently. And in those moments, Father, may we humbly accept where you've led us and trust that you have us where we are to get us where you want us to be. As we humble ourselves, Lord, may we trust you more and more. May we bend our will to yours in all things. May we not just know your will, but may we live by it as well. Thank you for this day, Lord, and we pray it all through Christ. Amen.